So a lot of the artificial narrow intelligence applications I'm very excited about. It's the artificial general intelligence, which is other branch, where we are an uh, uh, AI uh, system that is generally intelligent like human. It's not just, you know, tune on one task, but, but could do multiple things like humans do. I'm, I'm concerned about that. So it's one thing to have a really awesome uh, a chess playing robot, right? And, and, and that's been actually fantastic for humans to actually train and learn, you know, uh, chess and, 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 and be better at it. So, so these things have been great, but when you start equating it to this, you know, this idea of sentient, right? That, that to me is concerning. Data, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto and Web3, and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners, their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Now, before we begin, a note about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Experian, whom you may know as the Consumer Credit Bureau, but they are at heart a data company. When you're buying a car or home, sending your kids to college, or borrowing to grow your business, Experian is most likely helping you behind the scenes. They unlock the power of data to make better decisions, get access to financial services, and to prevent crime, unlocking a whole world of opportunities for individuals and organizations. Find out more at Experian.com. Chirag, welcome to Stories in AI. How are you today? I'm doing good. How about you, Ganesh? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's just I'm fighting a head cold and I have a different, I don't have my studio today, so I'm outside like sitting, hanging out and having, really looking forward to having this <laughs> chilled out conversation with you. Why don't you kick us off, Chirag, with your background? Who is Chirag Shah? What are you working on these days and how did you get to where you are today? Sure. Uh, so currently, I'm a professor at University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, my background is in uh, search and recommendation systems, and I've worked on different applications of AI over the years, uh, from natural language processing for language translation to uh, neural networks for information organization and um, speech processing and so on. Um, but uh, for the most part of my doctoral work, I've been focused on applications related to search and recommendation. And um, um, in, in most of those things, the idea is to make information systems as accessible as possible. So a lot of people have, uh, we, you know, we just take it for granted that everybody knows how to use Google and that's enough, but um, many situations that's not really enough and that's not sufficient for a lot of people and a lot of uh, uh, needs. And so I've been looking at how do we make these systems more um, accessible, more friendly, um, more helpful, uh, more intelligent. 
Um, and then in the last several years, I've also started looking at this other aspect of it, which is as we start building these systems smarter and more proactive, we also run into all these issues of bias and fairness. Um, these systems become more complex and opaque. And so I've also been um, working on the other side of it, which is you know what normally uh, falls under responsible AI, which is uh, looking at issues of this bias, fairness, transparency, um, ethical considerations. Right? So I think that's where my current work is. So I'm, I'm working on both sides of this information systems. On one side, I'm trying to make them still you know smarter, more helpful. But on the other side, I'm being mindful about the impacts that that pursuit would have on on individuals and society at large. So, you know, recommendation and responsible AI. That is awesome. You know, it's it's actually interesting you say that. I had a I had a guest on the podcast on on the show uh, called uh, Dr. Marissa Soap, uh, and Marissa Marissa is a researcher in. I think she's in Berlin and she's part of the large independent research organizations also associated with the university there. Um, and she was talking about, and she's actually really digging into the research on the the human machine interaction site, right? So part of the, like every aspect of the problem, like you said, on the one hand is like, how do you just make these intelligent systems more useful, mm -hmm. right? So pointed the right way, designed it the right way. And I used to always believe that like, you know, AI is not just the math, it's also the design, right? So it's like there's like the, the learning and the, 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 the left brain aspect of actually being able to crunch numbers faster, but then you have to make it useful by solving the design aspect. And then the entire spectrum, it's very fascinating that you know, your work, you do both on the sides of how do you make these systems useful and then take it all the way down to the spectrum is saying it's useful, but it's going to begin to, you know, turn Skynet on you sometimes. Soon. So how do you actually <laughs> solve that, right? So yeah, and I think you know, so there's a, a kind of a philosophical stance on it, and it goes all the way back to almost uh, founding of you know computer science or or the computational uh, sciences, where there are these two branches early on. One um, you can call uh, augmentation, and the other was automation. Right, so the augmentation essentially deals with creating this computational support for helping people do what they currently do. So not replace them, but to augment. You know, so there are things that machines are really good at, um, humans are not. But the task, the things are still human oriented. They're still human tasks. And so using machines to augment our abilities. So that's one kind of branch. And the other branch is automation, which is essentially replacing humans. For doing certain tasks right and again you can see the need for that too there are things that humans are doing maybe you can argue that uh humans could be better used for something else let's replace them with robots or other things right but but these are sort of these two branches and almost like a philosophical uh differences now that are becoming more pronounced right as we think about these systems are we thinking of them as more of an augmentation or more of an automation are they here to add to what we are currently doing or replace what replace you know what we're doing, right? Um, and I think that's what a lot of this ethical boundaries you see. Yeah, no, I, I agree. In fact, you know, like this was like I always used to believe that AI should have been um, AI shouldn't. There's nothing artificial about artificial intelligence. It's 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 very. Uh, 
Uh, it's very innate, right? And it's in the fact that I think AI should have been augmented intelligence because that's the commercial slash enterprise applications. More of the workflows you see outside of things like completely full self-driving cars and fully autonomous robots and stuff like that, most of the application is best served when you apply it towards augmenting an augmentation of human beings, right? Um, and on the other hand, like you said, like you know, and you did sound a little bit like out of the George, uh, George Orwell's uh, thing about saying there are better things that humans can be put to use for. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but 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 the other idea is like we live in a world where the information explosion is so much that our, I mean, the humans are what two hundred thousand years old, like you know, our entire uh, humankind. Um, we haven't really expanded our. I mean, the brain hasn't really changed over that time to take in all of that inputs. So what the opportunity with all this intelligence thing is to for, you know, perceiving for, uh, you know, understanding and calculations and stuff like that, it is to really have that augmentation around you to extend your human spectrum, right? So I think that's the huge opportunity here. So tell me about like, you know, so what is the industry today, right? I mean, there is this broad camps around it. What, what are still some of the, how, when, from your vantage point, because you straddle the world between cutting edge research and industry that you also do work a lot with a lot of industry players. How do you see the market today in terms of what is real? What is, you know, we're about getting there. What is still like really far away? So lay out the la lay of the land. Yeah. And so I, um, you know, while I'm in academia, I've had opportunity to work uh, with a lot of um, uh, inner sort of places. I've, I've spent, usually months at a time uh, during summer or sabbatical at places like uh, Microsoft and Amazon, Spotify. And so the advantage that gives me is, is actually gives me an idea of uh, where some of the things are more on the practical side. So, so I would argue that in academia, we are at the forefront of the knowledge creation, but then um, these places in, in industry, they are definitely looking at more of the direct impact on, um, on individuals in society. I think where we are now is, uh, so first off, we have to acknowledge the rapid growth in a lot of areas that have been around for a long time. So for instance, computer vision, it's one of the um, oldest uh, um, sub areas of AI. Um, in fact, if you're, um, you know, the, the classical movie, the 2001 of Space Odyssey, um, I, I was at a conference in 2001, I think in Salt Lake City, and the keynote was really focused on that movie because they were saying, and it was a computer vision conference, right? So, hey, it's 2001 now. Let's look at that movie and see the, the, the predictions that they made about how things would be in 2001. How far did we come? And so if you remember, there's this smart computer hall, right? With, yeah. uh, you know, it was sci-fi, right? Yeah. And, and the, the speaker talked about, well, look, a lot of the things that they actually uh, predicted in that movie were, did come to fruition. They actually, you know, uh, we actually made them happen. One thing where we lack is computer vision. So this is 2001, where the understanding by this computer vision community is uh, we're not as close to that sci-fi movie predicted we would be in 2001. But then when you look at what happened since 2001, right, in this last 20 years, it's gone leaps and bounds, right? I mean, forward where, you know, the facial recognition to, um, um, you know, things like DALI that, you know, takes a description and creates, you know, images to the, the new thing that Facebook demonstrated where it creates even videos, right? 
so I think computer vision has been around for decades, but the progress we've been able to make in the last two decades have been unmatched to anything we've done before. Um, same thing with some of the national language processing. I mean, I worked in national language processing, um, you know, uh, in late 90s and early, you know, 2000. Um, things were very different back then in terms of what we could achieve. There were like a lot of incremental improvements. But then in the last 10, 15 years, if you see, it's huge, huge change. So I think first we have to acknowledge that there's been this rapid uh, development, this progress in certain aspects of AI. Right. Not everything, but in certain aspects of AI. And that definitely creates uh, a new set of opportunities and challenges right, for, for industry because now you know we have this ability. And at the same time, um, the society is waking up to this. The regulators are waking up to this. They are certainly starting to say, hey, wait a minute. We were not prepared for this. Right? So facial um, recognition is a good example of it. The technology went way ahead of the societal readiness for this to the point where it was already doing so many things that we've like, no, no, we need to scale back. We don't usually do this with a lot of other technology where we make, like usually we are behind the, the curve, like we were, we were trying to hit yeah. something. Here we went ahead and now scaling back. So a lot of companies that started actually applying, deploying this uh, facial recognition technology, they had to cut it back, they had to cancel things, IBM, Microsoft, yep. many others. Yeah, and, and almost nobody uses it for law enforcement kind of use cases anymore, right? So it's yeah, it's tricky. Now, I mean, it's not going to go away, but the point is, it's the the the, the advancement when um, it happens so fast uh, in an accelerated mode that the industry wasn't ready, right? I mean, and the the tendency is, hey, you know, we have this tech ready, let's go ahead and use it, but then you know they start getting all this public pushback and the regulation and so on. So I think a lot of these things we are starting to see that where we're doing things because we could and we could make quick improvement, but then we are, you know, so rather than asking for permission is doing something and, and then apologizing for it. So that's sort of the trend has, you know, we're starting to see. That's interesting, you know, and, and you're so right. I mean, we never really had to the technology progress was always behind the curve of where the societal progress and the human progress was as a society. And then all of a sudden that almost like in the last 10 years, 20 years, that 10 years, actually, that model just flipped. And, you know, I was with someone yesterday, um, Worley, who is building a quantum uh, company called uh, Strangeworks. And the way he's thinking about it, look, I mean, we can't look at quantum as a, magnitude, order of magnitude improvement on computation, it just opens up our ability to solve a whole new class of problems that we thought was never mm -hmm. possible, right? And so he was making that point. And it makes me think, right, like we're getting into this world where we were more and more entering this world of, you know, I think somebody called it the exponential age, right? So we're in, you're just now, it's not just about shifts of orders of magnitude, it's quantum shifts from where you are from before. So. What's the solution here? I mean, how do we, I mean, this whole example of like the facial recognition or ethical guidelines for it, government's waking up and writing, you know, you know, the government is not probably the smartest people in the room in terms of technology. I mean, like, come on, uh, we've, we've seen that over and over again, right? I mean, I, I, how, what, how, what's the way to solve it? What's the way to solve it? 
Yeah, so this is a complex problem and, and unfortunately the solution is not simple. So often I um, talk about this in terms of like, how do we solve this in terms of what we did with uh, curbing tobacco consumption, right? So if you look at the history, you know, in the, back in the 50s, um, tobacco was not only not considered to be, uh, you know, harmful, it was actually, many people thought it was actually healthy. It was good to smoke. Yeah. And so oh, how, do, you. Yeah. <laughs> how do you go from there to where we are now? Well, we went through to, to that. But for, first off, there was a, this groundbreaking study. So you have to first do science, right? You have to show that there is actual harm. It's not enough to just hypothesize or just speculate. So there was a study that actually found the link between uh, tobacco consumption or smoking and cancer. And then there, you know, there, there was a larger scale study. So first, you know, you have to do science. Then there was a lot of this public awareness campaign, right? So you start, you know, telling people, most people are not going to read the actual scientific paper. So you have to explain it to, to them in a way they would understand. Then you start having, you know, then you have to explain it to the government. As you said, like, they're not all the smartest people, but, um, you know, you make a pitch to them and they're on board. They see the public harm to this. Um, and all the time you have to remember that you are fighting against a big tobacco. It's, a, it's, it's not an easy task to do, right? Because they, they would argue that, hey, we're just giving people a choice. People want to smoke. We're giving them, you know, it's a win-win, right? So how do you change that cycle? How do you step in to say to the, the tobacco companies, don't um, sell it to kids? Uh, how do you tell the users that, hey, it's bad for you. Stop buying it. It's not an easy problem, but it has taken us decades and it has uh, involved science. It has required public uh, reach. It has required regulations. We start putting labels on a pack of cigarette that it can kill you. Um, you start taxing it so much that it becomes very expensive for somebody to buy tobacco products. Um, you make it out of reach or hard to reach. Uh, you put a threshold, age limit. You make it socially unacceptable most places to smoke. So all of that has yeah. taken decades of work to get us to this place from where it was in the 50s and 60s, where people thought, oh, tobacco is not only not bad, but, you know, it's it's actually good. Well, the, the only thing I would say is like we're still, despite all that, we still lose about 100,000 people to lung cancer caused by tobacco smoking every year in the United States. Right. <laughs> and so thankfully, thankfully, um, AI is not that big a mortal danger. Not yet. Uh, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> so, so, but I think, will that approach really be enough in this age? Okay, should we move faster? Should we, should we actually, I mean, like, is there, because, I mean, there's always going to be, it's like, we're living in a, you know, a capitalist democratic society. Everybody have their free choices and they have to make and stuff like that. And, you know, educating people that some things are bad for you and reducing their reliance on that or things has historically hasn't really worked, you know, for humankind in general, right? I mean, uh, we know that. Is there a different approach that is needed here? I, I think so. So, I mean, I compared this problem with, uh, especially the solution with the tobacco uh, consumption, but I think the, the real comparison or real parallelism here is really the fact that it's going to take a long time and it's going to take efforts on multiple aspects. So that that's sort of the uh, the common thing here. That being said, the, the of course, it's different 
with AI than what it is with tobacco. I think AI in many ways, it's not a simple, easy thing to establish that this is bad, right? With tobacco, you do the studies and show that, you know, the increased uh, consumption actually leads to higher chances of cancer. There's tons of studies done. There's a more clear um, link that one could see, you know, and in some of the commercials that if you see about, you know, quitting uh, tobacco consumption, you see people actually suffering with cancer that they show, and, and, and it's much more relatable as opposed to harms of AI, um, which are not easy for everybody to see and appreciate, right? So how yeah. some of these disparities happen in, um, uh, in, in ways that, that, you know, people are not eager to, to say, oh yeah, I see that this is bad. So why is it bad that I like clicking on some conspiracy theories? Who am I harming? It's not easy for me to say, I'm, I'm, I'm just doing things that I think it's uh, interesting, right? I mean, you know. Yeah, we, we're just reeling from the effects of that from Jan 6th up to 2021, yeah. but sure. You know? But, but the link <laughs> the is not very clear, right? So, so right. And, and I think this is where one challenge is when we talk about solution, how do we solve this? So if you go like talk to, you know, Meta or other social media companies and they would quickly point fingers to, people who are producing bad content, mis misinformation stuff. And, and then they argue that, hey, you know, we need to really focus on identifying those actors, stopping that information. Sure, that's one, one aspect of it. But the larger aspect is what happens with, like there's never going to be a perfect system that blocks all of that uh, misinformation. So things will definitely you know, come out no matter what you do. And then there is this larger part of the equation, which is all of us, the rest of us who are consuming this information. We're not producing, but we are consuming and we are spreading. How are you going to stop them? And that's where they, this, some of these you know, companies, they don't have incentive to do that because this is the information that engages people. People want to read these things. They want to click on things. They want to share. And so that engagement drives the ad revenue. So why would you yep. stop that? Why, you know, and, and I think that's where we need some regulations. We need some user education because from the service provider side, there is little to no um, incentive to do anything about it. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, no, you're so right. And uh, to think of Cathy O'Neill's book, uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction, yeah. Math Destruction Math was published in 20, 2016. It's, a, it's an eye-opening thing. The more you think about it, you know, it's like um, it is not a technology or a technical problem at all, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's just the rate of change of technology has just completely you know, overshadowed what we are used to. The more we think about it, it's a social engineering problem mm -hmm. from everything from aligning incentives, you know, the sticks and carrots, you know, it's an economic problem, right? I mean, if you, if you really think about it and, you know, it's... Um, it, it's, it's fascinating. There's a lot of like, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm on the uh, advisory board of a company called Credo AI, you know, which is, uh, uh, you know, they're, for, they're building um, um, a responsible AI, AI governance platform to help you just think through all the things that you would otherwise not think through, right? And then they're now expanding into understanding, you know, what kind of regulations are coming down the pike. And so it becomes a compliance tool as well. Right? So it's fascinating. Those are like baby steps into this thing. But I still question this whole thing about, like, you know, one, we believe that a small group of really smart, you know, career uh, politicians can actually come up with the best way to solve this problem. 
I mean, they are social engineering experts, no doubt, right? I mean, so hopefully they can, but their reference point and the lens at which they look at things is was based on how technology was governed in the last 20 years, in the last, you know, 10 decades, right? Those are not the way yeah. these things are moving right now, right? So. Um, I, I don't know the answer. I just know to ask the question. I, yeah, and that's why this is a complex problem. I mean, we, uh, I, I completely agree that it, there is less of a technical challenge here. So there's so many technical challenges. And then so some of my research work has been around, you know, trying to identify where the bias, for instance, is coming from. And if you find that bias, you know, could you fix it? Could you reverse it? And sure, you know, my work and many others' work have shown that it is possible. But say that's just a small part of the whole thing. Just because it's possible, that doesn't mean somebody has the right motivation to take it and implement it. Do it, yeah. And, yeah. and so I think that's where our real struggle is. Um, and so, you know, uh, and I, I think you have to understand, you know, the way our capitalist society works, the way the, the free market model works, where um, a lot of these services that, are quote unquote free. I mean, they're not really free, of course. They're very expensive services to run and they're running on ads, right? And so you yeah. have to think about like, why would somebody pay to have their ads somewhere? They're paying because there is actually, there are people coming and engaging. They're engaging. Why would people engage, right? And so obviously these services, their equation is to increase engagement because that's what generates, you know, ad revenues and that's what, you know, keeps yep. things running. Unfortunately, engagement, which, you know, back when I was a student, you know, we learn about engagement is a good thing. It's, it's, I mean, we still teach it, right? I mean, you want to have your users engaged. You know, I'm an educator. If I'm teaching a class, I want my students to be engaged. You know, I'm always looking for that engagement. What can I do? But here we know that people don't engage with stuff just because it's good or quality or relevant useful they also engage or actually they are more likely to engage because it causes certain um, emotions like excitement fear hatred um, so no wonder then conspiracy theory uh, articles are a lot more engaging right or or the things that already confirm my existing biases are more engaging it, 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 it activates your amygdala to, and then, you know, you get the dopamine dose and you know, all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is a lot more fun. You get into the droom scrolling, and you know, rather than. Now Google right. can argue that, hey, we're just giving people what they want, right? It's not our fault. We're just here to serve. We're not creating this information. We are just, yeah. but I mean, this is the same thing a, a, a drug dealer will argue, right? It's like, I'm not creating. You know, it's, it's like, you know, it, it circles back to the earlier comments you made. Humans are best used for certain things. <laughs> we should optimize for that, right? I mean, don't let them think about these things. Anyway, so no, this is this 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 is a this is a really deep topic, and you know, we'll need like hundreds of hours to just think through and debate through. But I'm so grateful that people like you, who is on the fringes of cutting edge academia, and and the, uh, theoretical science and also have the um, the industry uh, connections and exposure are all thinking about it and working through it. I mean, that's what gives, you know, folks like me the hope that, you know, it's not going to be someone sitting in Washington, D.C. Uh, and making a decision on this. There's a lot more thought being put behind it and stuff. So let me shift gears here, right? Like, so in this expanse of responsible AI, you know, from how people are looking at it, doing it, and like there's 
there's bias, there is the, you know, the um, uh, bias and fairness, two sides of the coin, there is the ability, there's robustness of AI, so you don't really have adversarial attacks on it. And there's all these different technical elements of it, right? Based on your experience, it's like how, who is doing, if you don't want to name anybody, but like who, what are the best practices you've seen in ensuring AI is more ethical in nature or more responsibly deployed in nature? Does, doesn't, you know, you're minimizing the unintended consequences, right? Give me some examples or stories there. Yeah. So, um, in general, a lot of places, you know, what I've seen um, are at this point just starting with regulations, so things that they need to do to come to be in compliance. So, so those are the more common thing, right? Because that, that's that's sort of the required thing. Um, where I've seen interesting things is where your places, you know, are doing things that are not currently uh, under regulations or anything, but they start identifying issues. So I'll give you an example from Spotify. You know, I, I worked there for a few months uh, during my sabbatical a few years ago. And um, some of us were there who were like researchers. You know, I was a visiting researcher. We're interested in this issue of fairness. Um, in the context of Spotify, what we found, which is actually true for many, many other companies, is um, you're essentially a marketplace. So you have users, so in this Spotify's case, there are listeners, and then you have artists. And there's often a mismatch in what you have available and what you provide. So typically, you know, if you think about music, there are millions and millions of tracks. There are hundreds of thousands of artists. A user coming to your platform is usually going to see a, a handful of recommendations or, or things, you know, albums or artists and things. Uh, sure, they can search for it, they can browse it, but most users don't have that much time, patience to really go through your entire catalog uh, and to sample things, right? So they're really relying on your recommendation. So what, what we found at Spotify is um, we have a very skewed and quote-unquote unfair system because there are this 90% of the stuff that don't get recommended, don't actually get seen by most users. And because they're not being seen, the listeners don't know that they would even like this, right? Yeah. And so you have no data about them, right? Yep. So, so this creates this vicious cycle, right? Where people see the popular artists, that's what they listen. And then Spotify learns that, hey, that's a, you know, so it's like, it, that's that's popular artist, right? so how do you, yeah. what do you like, first off, do you do anything about it? Um, and then two, of course, what do you do about it? So in case of Spotify, they recognize that this is actually bad in a long term. Why? Because you have, like, you know, currently the streaming industry is artists don't get things for producing. They get things for streaming, right? So Spotify or any other streaming provider will only yep. um, pay to the artists yeah. if their music is streamed. So imagine all this, like 90% of the artists who don't get their music streamed, that's not going to be good for them. They're not going to be able to make their living they're going to stop creating. They're going to drop out of the platform, right? Um, not only that, the popular artists are also more expensive. So for every minute that somebody streams, Spotify has to pay yeah. more to a popular stream versus less popular stream. So this was a case where in introducing, like thinking about this fairness and introducing diversity was in everybody's best interest, right? that it will allow the users to discover new music, new things, 
It will allow the less known artists to be discovered. It will give Spotify an ability to balance better, like, you know, their, their payouts. Yep. Um, and so Spotify started working on this. I mean, again, you know, the, the, this whole thing stemmed from some of us just being interested in the issue of fairness. But when the case was made that, hey, this is also good for business, right? Then, you know, there, there's, started the, there's a yeah. more interest and excitement about it, right? Um, and you can imagine this yeah. this being same for a lot of other. So if you think about it, in Amazon, you got millions of products that are new. They don't have reviews or ratings. And a consumer is less likely to buy something that doesn't have review or rating. So then this, again, creates this vicious cycle where lots of these products don't get seen, um, don't get bought. And because they don't get bought or seen, they're not going to generate re ratings or, revenue, uh, or, or reviews. And so, again, it would be an Amazon's interest to not have the consumers just tied to this, the head of it, but also be exposed to tail. You know, it's actually what, what is really clearly coming through in both those examples is back to your early uh, comment on, well, if your business model was ad, you know, um, display ads for engagement, you have no incentive to change the way things work, as in case of Google or Facebook. But if it's not good for business by having a small group of people drive more engagement, listen, listenership or whatever on the platform with reviews or uh, more business on the platform. And since your business model is being that arbitration marketplace, if you will, right, that you're actually helping people discover more products or more talent and you know artists and so forth, it only works when you have align your incentives for it mm -hmm. not the other way around yeah. it's the, it's not just because like you know we found a problem and, and i know you probably you guys wanted to work on a problem and then you later discovered it's actually good for business too but i can almost think of the other side of this is like if it is not good for business if it doesn't align with your you know incentives for your business it's almost impossible to actually implement you know, uh, a theoretically fair or more, yeah. you know, less biased system to do it, right? And, uh, exactly. So I think, you know, my advice to a lot of these places is, you know, because I know people at these places who want, they who, they, who care about these issues, they want to work on it, right? They, they, they do care about it. And so my advice to them is see if you can establish a link to fairness to your business, you know, uh, objectives. Um, then you're gonna, then you're more likely to have the support. So most places, unfortunately, are not gonna do something just because it's the right thing to do. They will do it because there is a regulation, there is a law, there is you know something that compels them. Um, they will do it if their users demand it, or they will do it if they have a business case, right? Yep. No, it's 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 amazing. I just I just wrote something down. I was like, I think you know. A lot of the companies, including, and I've worked with several of them, your MasterCards, Visa, uh, you know, Capital One, JP Morgan, I have their head of responsibility coming on the show in a few weeks. And everybody approaches this as from two points, right? I mean, everybody who, like, I'm not blaming anybody for it, but the usual method to actually approach a responsibility initiative is hire a bunch of really smart researchers and engineers who understand technically how do you actually, you know, have a, a very robust ecosystem that is more fair, that is less, you know, more robust and stuff like that from an AI perspective. Whereas what you just established in these examples, what it really needed is 
you need to find a business analyst first or a strategist who would come in, look across the business, and then make a list of things that could really change the trajectory of the business if you do things a certain way. And then find the link towards saying, does that lead down back to uh, uh, um, an issue of fairness or robustness or you know just just explainability, for example, right? I mean, like I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. Like five, six years ago, I was working with a large UK-based bank on their wealth management. We were deploying AI uh, to to provide a 360 view of the customer and a lot of inferred, observed kind of characteristics to predict whether this particular uh, high net worth individual is going to like just looking at emails for example and finding out that their kids are going to college next year so you know can you sell them a new product or you know they're having a 20 percent drawdown in their portfolio due to a black swan event how do you reallocate automatically and stuff and what we learned was actually very interesting right which is technically those are all problems that you can solve right in fact microsoft was involved in that in that uh deployment too the hardest thing is what you're taking away in their case was these high net worth individuals who are the wealth management clients enjoy the interaction with their, um, you know, their, 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 uh, their portfolio managers and, uh, you know, uh, wealth managers who work with them on a day to day. They know everything about the person. They contextualize the actual data to what these guys want to hear and so forth. And what, even though the, the desire of the bank initially was like, how do you reach the mass affluent market by giving them, a lower touch model, but give them the same kind of service and stuff. We realize that we don't really solve the problem for them because it's the same thing where what is good for business there was empowering that wealth manager mm -hmm. to have more contextual conversations, make that connection. You know, maybe, you know, find out that like, so, so when we turn this thing around saying this person loves to watch, uh, you know, um, 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 at the time it was like who, um, you know, uh, Roger Federer on Wimbledon. Let's say, for example, his tweet analysis say that. Well, instead of actually giving them and selling and pushing products, a more intimate response will be buy them a Wimbledon ticket when Roger Federer is playing in semifinals and have the wealth manager go and sit with them, have a two-hour quality conversation and watch the game together, yeah. right? I mean, you're using same AI NLP to actually find these things, but you're approaching it in a slightly different way. It was good for business, right? Yeah. So it's I'm trying to draw that connection. I think here. that's a great example. So I think um, this is what I'm trying to push for now with uh, some of these ad revenue-based companies that it's not like they're against doing fair things or right things or good things, right? It's just like they okay. keep saying, well, the, you know, we're giving people what they want. And so what if your users wanted something different, right? And so, um, so one way, you know, because I'm, a, I'm an educator, so I also often think more from the education standpoint, like how do I educate and empower my users so they start changing their taste, they start changing their, what they click on, what they watch, what they demand. And then the algorithms on the other side will start learning that, hey, actually they do care about diversity. They do care about these other things. So maybe, um, and, and then this could create a different kind of, you know, positive feedback loop than what we have. It's extremely difficult, I'll say that. Um, mm -hmm. But I also know that, uh, you know, unless we have, you know, so other, other possibilities, we have some, you know, regulations, right? So, so Europe has been, uh, European Union has been more advancing in, in this area than the US has. Um, 
But that's one way to do that, where you compel this um, uh, tech industry to start doing things from their side before you ask the users to change their behavior, because you have established that this is actually bad and, and you kind of have to start you know, making change. So that's one way to do that. Or the other way, which is a slow change, but happens you know, over a long period of time, is, is what the users do. Um, so I tell you know, my students also that every time you click something, it's a vote. And so, you know, you're right, you know, we are in a, it's a democratized, you know, world, right? And, and when it comes to consuming everything, you vote. You vote, you, you, if you, but for, for you to vote differently, you have to realize the implications of that click. If you think that, hey, I'm just clicking, who cares, right? That's where we lose people. That's where we, so I think that's fascinating. We, yeah, we are now where yeah, we, no. No, no, fascinating. I think you know your your you know every click is a vote, and you know, in in a internet-led global world, you're basically voting with your intentions and your actions every time, every every day. And what you're doing in the other side is actually you're feeding algorithms to optimize for your votes and getting more votes in the process, right? So, the the it it's it's just such a beautiful concept, which is you know because. It all comes down to like, you know, it's not the technology, it's not the pieces, it's not the how, it's not looking for bias in the data sets that's being trained and stuff. It's about trying to find the right things to do. It all starts from there, right? You know, like you said, if you're when, when you're consulting or talking to these, um, you know, ad server-based business model kind of companies, you're telling them saying, look, what if you can actually find other things, adjacencies that your users are more excited about that has a higher probability of going into a positive feedback loop and better for the society and so forth, right? Combine that with the, the business analysis and how it's going to actually go and change the trajectory of the business. I mean, that's the business case for doing ethical AI or responsible AI, right? So, uh, Chirag, this is fascinating. Thank you for taking the time. And, you know, I know we went like so many different <laughs> directions on this, but well, that's the fun part, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, no, that's, 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 that's exactly. There's a lot to talk about here. There's a lot that's happening. And as you know, things are changing every day, right? So there's there's new stories breaking out, new kind of things we are witnessing every day. So we're in this world. So, so, <laughs> yeah, my, my last question to you, what are, the, what, are the, what are a few things that you're really excited about in AI? you know, right now? Yeah, so I'm um, really excited about, so So when it comes to AI, there are these two, and, and it's very important to differentiate these two branches. One is it's called the artificial narrow intelligence, where mm -hmm. you're building things that are um, really tuned um, on a certain task. So they're, they're really made for certain tasks. And they're doing this. Yep. So I think we're making great strides in those things. And so I'm really excited about some of these things that are able to, um, you know, so from, from self-driving cars now, which I'm not too big a fan, um, but, but, you know, because there are all kinds of ethical issues that we haven't really resolved yet uh, before having that. But it allows us to, it, it gives us a new hope for some of the things that um, are, we only dreamt about, you know, and so there are a lot of things in healthcare, for instance, uh, they're making really you know, great progress. Uh, there are things that are able to do that would have taken us like decades now happening in, you know, in, in months time. So a lot of the artificial yeah. narrow intelligence applications I'm very excited about. It's the artificial general intelligence, which is the other branch where we are uh, the, the, in an AI uh, system that is 
generally intelligent like human. It's not just, you know, tune on one task, but but could do multiple things like humans do. I'm, I'm concerned about that. So it's one thing to have a really awesome um, a, a chess playing robot, right? And, and, and that's been actually fantastic for humans to actually train and learn, you know, uh, chess and, 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 and be better at yep. it. So, so these things have been great. But when you start equating it to this, you know, this idea of sentient, right, that, that to me is concerning. Um, and, and so I'm are, we, are we really, I mean, we're not even close there, are we? Right. I mean, no, but we, we like to believe that it's there. Right. And as you know, this uh, story happened a few months ago where even Google's own engineer, you know, thought of the, you know, this thing. But, you know, those of us who study this, we know that all the systems are doing is just pretending to be knowledgeable or pretending to be natural and pretending to feel things. Quote, unquote. Sentient, yeah. But they're not really, you know, they're not designed to really um think or feel, um, but they, they are so good at giving us that impression. So if a, if a, an experienced person, you know, like the Google engineer could be fooled by that, clearly, you know, an average user can easily fool. So I'm, I'm kind of wary of that, equating the artificial narrow intelligence to artificial general intelligence. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there, there was a, you know, when, when we were doing some work on like counterfactual and response to AI and stuff, there was this concept that we worked on where in, um, you know, you have an AI or, or a system, a model that looks at another model, almost in a third party. But then, you know, you when you when you query that this particular model that's watching over the other model, you're responding as if you're the model that you're watching, right? So, as an example, that could be an easy way to actually fool someone to think that I know I exist. I'm a model here. I'm so and so. I'm performing this task, and here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm hearing. But it's not that actual model that's actually responding back to that, right? So you can design really smart system to fool people, mm -hmm. right? And you know, even experienced people. And but I think the 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 dangers of that is still a social engineering problem, not a technical problem yeah. to kind of take yeah. over, right? So it's the it, can people use that to you know fool others? Can people use that to cheat and you know cause harm and let people cause harm to themselves and that kind of stuff, right? So, no, I, it's, it's, that's that whole space. I think there is going to be that, um, the equivalent of, uh, you know, uh, the, the white hat, um, you know, uh, cybersecurity guys that we have, like yeah. just trying different things and trying to do it. We need that kind of a task force for AI as well, just, just to walk through all of these different permutation combinations of all the things that could go wrong. Because I mean, a lot of yeah, things that's, are purely experimental. That's a tall order, right? So just within the academic community here, you know, we're recently having discussions about um, AI that can write papers, right? And and then, you know, even submitting to journals and getting it accepted. So the question is, and this is an ethical dilemma here that, first off, is that okay? And there are arguments on both sides, right? I mean, so most people say, no, that's not okay. That's That's cheating, right? But some people on the other side say, well, look, we publish things that add to human knowledge, that increase human knowledge. If an AI agent can add to human knowledge, what's so wrong with that? Right? Sure. Fair. And I think that's a, I, I take that argument. The only thing I would say is like, you know, in that case, you, you know, look, 
the AI system is a non-sentient system, so it doesn't know what's good versus not. If it finds out that saying, look, I mean, purely probabilistically, it's a, and it's, it's a very probabilistic, non-deterministic world, right? So um, it'll say like, every time these three things happens, the patient dies, yeah. let's say, for example, in a healthcare research. I mean, there'll be no causal model that's actually going into it. So it's still contextualizing that with the human expert to go in and say, I mean, because we're still the most intelligent being that we know. <laughs> right so <laughs> at least from a from a generally intelligent being right so un, un, unless until that changes I mean, you still have to revolve around that human brain and the human you know uh, construct to go to i mean that's my belief system i'm also biased on that right no so, no i agree with you so i didn't mention that there is a third branch of that ai you know so i talked about artificial narrow intelligence artificial general intelligence general. and there's artificial super intelligence so this is where you get skynet right where yep. you have a system that gets even smarter than so not only it's kind of mimicking what the humans can do in every aspect but actually gets smarter than that so i think that and then of course we're nowhere close to that right but you know a lot of people worry that the trajectory we are on where we are making so it was one thing to have a chess playing robot it's another thing to have you know a a, a system that you trust to to give you all this you know so it's like a, a digital therapist, right? Mm -hmm. That's a, the, and, and there are cases where, where a GPT-3 based model, you're having conversation and say, I'm thinking of killing myself. Do you think it's a good idea? And the model says, I think it's a good idea, right? <laughs> and, and so we need to know that like, we're not there yet to deploy a model doing a, a mental health, you know, um, diagnosing mental health and actually providing um, uh, kind of a prescription a diagnosis, you know, for these things. And then, you know, that trajectory, if you continue down, then that super intelligence where we would rather trust an AI system than a mental health care professional you know, for doing this. So, yeah, no, I think uh, I, I, I thought only Nick Bostrom believed in that, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a possibility. That's a spectrum, right? So, Chirag, this is fascinating. Thank you for exploring all of these different things here for the audience here. And thank you for getting on to Stories in AI. Where can the listeners and viewers get in touch with you? How do they find you on the internet? Yeah, so I'm at chiragshah.org. So that's my uh, website. And you can uh, find my email from there. Um, of course, I'm on LinkedIn and other places. I'm not hard to find. I'm not trying to hide. And uh, anyone <laughs> like you know you who's like having this passionate uh, conversation about the AI, always happy to chat and, and collaborate. So uh, I'm very happy yeah, about these to. things. And um, yeah, have, I know, have you, you're here. definitely, a, you're definitely a, an emerging thought leader in the space and you're doing some amazing work. And we look forward to actually following your journey and your work as well, the process. So thanks so much for taking the time and uh, have a good uh, rest of the day. My pleasure, Ganesh. Thanks for your time too. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for me or my guests. And check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.